Exodus chapter 14, the word of the Lord was written a long time ago, but it was written with you in mind. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi Hahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. 
Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Father in heaven, we ask again that you would give life and light to your word. May your spirit work in us. For Christ's sake, amen. I think I I probably remember it starting on the bus. Really, it was a a trip, I I think probably unlike none I will ever experience again. And uh, unlike, actually, I guess, thinking about the way the situation has changed, probably no one will experience again. Started in a parking lot, probably 10, 15 at night, a group of people gathering together, getting ready to get on a school bus. And you could kind of see it was exciting. The kids were pinging off the walls because it's after 10 p.m. and they're still awake. Adults are excited because it's a crowd and everybody gets excited in a crowd. And the old, you know, 1925 yellow school bus pulls. I'm not really that old, but the old school bus pulls up and everybody piles on the bus. And it begins driving. It drives down the road for a little bit until it turns off into what could um, maybe charitably be called a road. I'm, I'm not really sure. I remember that was when really the complaining started. The people that were bounced off of their seats and have to hang on so they didn't end up sitting on the floor. The poor people who had motion sickness debating do they risk hanging their head out of the window of the bus to try to throw up before one of the branches broke the glass out? I mean, I, I remember, I, you know, I was bouncing off the seat like a roller coaster ride. The grumbling, the complaining, pretty intense. Until we got down to the shore, down to the beach, where the guy driving the bus says, Hope you guys had a nice trip. We'll see you later. <laughs> Thanks for driving, friend. At which point there's a boat and they kind of tell everybody to get on the boat. And again, everybody's excited to be on the boat because you're not in the bus. (laughs) And the boat kind of you hop in and it kind of slowly floats out into the middle of a harbor. In the middle of a bay, really, I guess. And it's pitch black. I mean, completely pitch black. The pilot turns off the boat and it kind of really floated more than anything. didn't really use the engines. You get out to the middle of the bay. And the guy driving the boat walks to the back where everybody's kind of sitting. You can see the anxiety level kind of rising. And he looks at it and goes, jump in. Now, I don't know about you, I, I don't really do water much. I mean, I, in showers I do, but I don't really like swimming. Uh, I don't like swimming in general, but I really don't like swimming where I can't see the bottom. Or what's going to get me, much less the fact that this was ocean water at, at this point close to 11 p.m., and you can't see anything. And the guy's like, jump in. And that guy's like, nope, I don't think so. <laughs> it ain't happening. All right, you, jump in. And finally, my friend who was with me, who was a Marine, is like, I'm out. And, you know, goes flying off the side of the boat. And, of course, the second he hits the water, the water lit up like fireworks. 
See, the key piece of info I didn't let you in on is actually it's the brightest bioluminescent bay in the world. At least it was 11 years ago this month when I went swimming in it. It doesn't exist anymore. It's a shallow bay that right where the mouth of the ocean is, it has a little hump. So the water washes in and then superheats from the sun. And then the you know, phosphor little critters grow in the bajillions. And you can't see them when the water's still. But the second that you jump in, it's like fireworks go off under the water. My friend, the Marine, jumped in. He had a big old beard and big old hair. It was funny because he went down, and when he came out, he looked like a sea monster as his beard glowed. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's intriguing how that's the moment where all of the complaining kind of goes away, right? No more worry about the bus ride. Yeah, I might have, you know, puked my head out the window. It's fine. I don't really care about that. I can wash the barf off, you know, in the little glowing critters. Uh, And you'll remember for the rest of your life a trip to a bioluminescent bay that today doesn't even show up anymore. You could get the sense at the beginning something special was happening. But even when we had signed up for it, we didn't expect it to be that. We knew we were going to see something marvelous. I didn't think I was going to see that. The way that Exodus has read, before you get to chapter 14, you would have this sense of anticipation and excitement that something's happening. We're going to see something spectacular. The Lord has provided all of these plagues to destroy Egypt. And you think, well, that's it. I mean, he killed all of the firstborn of Egypt and spared his people. He had that creepy, tangible darkness that like stuck to you where your, you know, your fire wouldn't produce light. It was disturbing. The bugs, the frogs, the boils. So when he brings them out of slavery into Egypt, you fully expect something special is going to happen. And you expect, okay, he's going to take the way that runs kind of along the north of Egypt, along the Mediterranean up into Israel, and maybe he's going to destroy all the Canaanites as they go. Maybe he's going to destroy the Egyptian outposts along the way. It's going to be amazing. The only thing is, God makes a wrong turn. Rather than following the nice, well, you know, taken care of road that would lead out of Egypt and up into Israel, they go south. And I'm fairly certain, I mean, I'm not a brilliant uh, guy with geography, I'm fairly certain if you want to get out of Egypt, the one way you really can't go is south. Because you have to go a really long way. They go south, and it's where the story picks up. The Lord says to Moses, by the way, you've been headed southeast. You've been headed this direction. (laughs) It's time to turn around. Okay. Maybe the Lord's made a mistake. Maybe, maybe Maybe God has a bad sense of direction. I mean, why would he do this? And then in chapter 14, these verse, you know, first couple of verses, he tells them expi- explicitly to go camp right next to the sea. 
maybe don't study military history or tactics for fun. I've done that in a portion of my life. It's terrible military strategy. You always want to fight in a place where you have a way to retreat. Sun Tzu and the Art of War, it's one of his big themes. You never attack an army that has no place to retreat because then the men will fight ten times harder because they know they're going to die. And you never let your army get put in a situation where you can't retreat because then you're definitely going to die. And yet here God explicitly takes them into a terrible tactical location. They have desert on one side, they have wilderness to the south, and they have the sea on the other. Literally the only safe place to run. Oh, wait, no, that's where Pharaoh and his guys show up. (laughs) The way you would hope to leave, the way you would hope to go is suddenly filled with Pharaoh and his chariots. It's this great reminder as we come to passages like this that God's ways are not our ways. It's the challenge of preaching passages that are so familiar like the Red Sea. It's the challenge because we know them so well, it's so easy for us to just remember them in ways that don't challenge us. Remember them in ways that aren't demanding of us. Remember the stories in ways that are safe and tidy and easy. To be honest, I mean, I learned this. I I can't even remember the time I learned this passage because it's been so much a part of my life. Yet I, I don't think I ever remember properly understanding as a child that God had intentionally led them by human standards in all the wrong ways. He led them into a situation that is what we would call beyond worse than a rock in a hard place. There was no way out. I mean, humanly speaking, if you're going to look at the geography, if we're going to pull out a map, there's one thing that you would say about Israel at this point, and it is this. They're going to die. There is no human way out of this situation. You have a sense of anticipation, but man, does it look a mess. Again, we know the rest of the story, so we go, well, Michael, it had to be a mess in order for the Red Sea to be special. It it had to be a mess so that God's greatness would be shown. It it had to be a mess so that Israel would actually learn to lean upon God, to trust Him. You say, Michael, it had to be a mess. That's what makes for good storytelling. You know, the staggering thing is how quickly we forget that with our own lives. That when we get in those situations that are dark and difficult and trying... Well, that's not supposed to happen to me. I mean, that was the Old Testament. God was doing something spectacular there, and it had to be bad so his glory would shine. It's not supposed to be that way for me. I'm in the New Testament, right? I'm only supposed to have happy times, flowers, and puppies, and things that make me happy. I'm not supposed to have difficulty. I'm not supposed to be persecuted. I'm not supposed to have illness. I'm, I'm not under the curse anymore, right? 
Verse 5 continues the story as God knows it. It's a part that Israel wouldn't exactly get to see immediately. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, finds out that they've, they've run. And it's like he has this kind of moment of clarity, except it's in reverse, where he reverts to his old way, his hardened, heavy heart. He says, what have we done? How could we have let Israel go? Like, obviously, your firstborn son wasn't that important to you, if you're kind of already moved on from that. But okay, we'll, do, we'll talk about Pharaoh's family dynamics at a later date. But he highlights what he understands here in verse 5 is the, the economic devastation. What have we done? We've let our entire economy go. All of Israel, the ones who did all of the work, they left. We might actually have to work now. <laughs> Being that we don't have very sanitary or safe working conditions, I don't think we want to do that. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt and all the officers. And we read that, and again, as American Westerner minds, we're kind of like, blah, 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 Pharaoh goes after them. Right, we kind of don't hear any of those details. We just kind of motor on to Pharaoh goes after them. Except it's really important what it just explains there. It's the modern version of saying, and Pharaoh loaded up an entire army of drones equipped with the most sophisticated target tracking missiles that they can watch exactly. What's being described here is the most powerful army in human existence up to this point. It's not just Pharaoh loaded up his chariots. At this point in human history, you know how many wars chariots had ever lost? Zero would be the answer. At this point in human history, they hadn't figured out how to conquer chariots. You know the best way? Actually, this is uh, true. Weird, weird things I've learned along the way. The best way to try to combat chariots on the, the battlefield, one, they're so much faster they were able to carry uh, like munitions in them, so you could actually shoot bow and arrow from a chariot. Uh, and if it was done properly, it didn't matter what armor you had, it was going to kill you. You could use a spear, you could use a javelin. The only sort of way to try to really combat it was all of the chariots were pulled by male horses because they were so big and so strong. And so the best way to combat it was to send a female horse onto the battlefield. And her pheromones were so strong, all the male horses decided battle wasn't really important anymore. <laughs> they wanted something else to do. And so what you would actually have to do is you would have to capture the female horse, kill her, and cut her up into pieces. So her pheromones disappeared. And that was the only way to conquer chariots at the time. Which, funny enough, what does Israel not happen to have? Oh, yeah, they don't have any horses. That's right. They're on foot. Oh, yeah, that's right. They've got a nation of, we'll say, two and a half million people running from the strongest army at this point in human history, which happens to be strong because it has developed a technology that allows them to go faster than anyone else with better weapons than anyone else. You can see quickly how this is going to go south, can't you? He loads up all of his chariots, and then in the midst of all of his chariots, this is to give you a sense of scale, he takes his own special kind of battalion. 
So his little honor guard, we would call that his secret service, is 600 chariots. How big of an army are we talking if his secret service is 600 chariots? And again, you can kind of begin to understand, this is not a good situation for Israel. You can't outrun a chariot. Where are you going to run? In the ocean? That's not going to happen. Into the wilderness? You're going to die. Into the desert? Uh, You'll die of, you know, being baked alive in just a short day or two. And by the way, oh yeah, Israel, you have all of those traveling with you, women, children, aged, you have the entire population base. They just have an army of men who have been trained to kill. This isn't going to end well. Verse 10, when Pharaoh draws near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. What do they lift up their eyes to see? Remember, if you remember from our Ezekiel Bible study at the very beginning, how can you tell when a chariot's coming through the desert? Well, uh, or coming through the you know, land like this, there'd be a dust cloud. How would you be able to tell, and I'm going to make up a number, if we'll say 4,000 chariots were coming? It would be a rather substantial dust cloud. It's not going to be like a car that just, you know, the oil and gasoline balance isn't quite right and the engine's running dirty and it's got this, you know, cloud of smoke. This is a substantial mark on the horizon. And the story starts well. It seems like the people of Israel kind of get it for a second and then they don't for the rest. They cry out to the Lord and you're like, oh, finally, ah, you got it. You're supposed to do that. That's verse 10. And then verse 11, they start talking and you wish they hadn't. (laughs) Verse 11, with one of the most spectacularly passive-aggressive questions I think I've read in a long time. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? So you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? It's quite likely, you remember... They were used as slaves to build. What do you think they were building? What are the Egyptians famous for with their architecture? Houses of the dead. This is the most stupid question you can imagine because they know that's not true. One, graves are easy to find. You don't have to dig too deep. Moses actually didn't dig very deep at all when he did his, right? Just buried him in the sand. But their slavery was most likely that of actually building the specific houses of the dead. And they're like, look, what are you doing? Are you taking us out here to die? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, I I love this one. Again, this is so dumb. Isn't this what we said to you while we're in Egypt? Look, it's better to be slaves there than it is to come out and die here. Where is there, give me liberty or give me death? It's not here, right? Give me servitude forever instead of death. You realize he was killing your children and working you to death, but okay, that's fine. It's real easy for us to lampoon Israel here because their response is so bad. I mean, it's so bad. Already, they've watched miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, specifically in the form of curses. 
The Lord has judged Egypt over and over and over again, even to the point of killing all of the firstborn. And you're like, well, man, you guys have seen it. It's shocking how quickly you turn into cowards when confronted with just the slightest bit of difficulty. Oh, you foolish Israelites, you had seen so much and you trusted so little. And I'm like, that gives me the little bit of heebie-jeebies because of my own experience. They saw all these miracles. They didn't even have the Spirit after Pentecost. They were trusting in the promises of God. They didn't have the Scriptures telling them of Jesus. They hadn't seen half of what we know. It's amazing to think about that the Israelites here, as having witnessed all of these miracles, have in many ways witnessed less than what we have. Because they were looking forward to a hope that they didn't know exactly how we would come. We know, Emmanuel, God with us. We've seen the miracles that God continues to do as answers to prayer. I mean, how many of the children of this church are specifically alive today as answers to God's sweet answers to prayer of his people? If you read this passage and lampoon them and don't in some way consider how quickly we get bent out of sorts when things don't go the way that we like, I think we've probably misread the text. To think of how rapidly, how rapidly we get upset about things going the wrong way. Tom and I were talking about that this week. We're the richest people in human history. We live the best lives in human history. We eat the best genetically modified food in human history. We have the best salaries in human history. We have the best houses in human history. I mean, if you go to think about it, Solomon would have coveted the life that we lead, any of us. And yet, how quickly do I go into complain mode? How quickly do I go into discourage mode? And some of us, it's a little bit more sophisticated, right? We don't get passive aggressive with God. We just get pouty. We just get grumpy. I'm just, I'm just dealing. And we miss out on what God is doing. verse 13 Moses comes back and says fear not Uh, that would be screamed more like the grammar of that is as strong of a do not fear as can be constructed don't be afraid God's going to fight and I love how it gets there in verse 14 the Lord's going to fight and your job is to shut it Your job is to watch. He's the one who's in charge. He is the divine warrior. He is the Lord God. He is the one who's going to fight. You just watch what God does. Fifteen, the Lord asks Moses a question. Moses being a representative of the people. Put kind of more common vernacular today would be, why are they complaining? Why are they complaining? I've already killed the firstborn of Egypt. 
much less all of the other people that have died along the way. Why are they complaining about a little bit of chariots? I don't understand the problem. Why are they complaining? And so the Lord instructs Moses to go and to lift up his staff and to stretch it out and the sea begins to part. Now again, we've probably seen this on the flannel graph or in the movies or whatever and it's more often than not, weirdly enough, it's portrayed the wrong way. It's portrayed the wrong way for a number of reasons because first off of 19 and 20, the dynamics of what happens in the, in the meantime. First in 19 and 20, you have two figures that begin to move and alter their tactics. First, the angel of God, which gets mentioned here in a unique way that's been traveling with them apparently through here, but hasn't been highlighted yet. But God's specific angel, the angel of the Lord, moves around back to the rear guard of the people of Israel. And again, remember, we're not talking about a group of like 100 people. This is not a small amount of folks. Again, better part, good, good way to guess. You know, we're talking a million or something like that. Two million, two and a half. The angel of the Lord moves around back to be their rear guard. And then the pillar of fire and cloud moves around back. So that you have this kind of arrangement, stacked order. You have the sea, you have Israel, you have the cloud and the angel, and then you have Egypt. And 20 highlights the bizarre nature of this interaction. Coming between the host of Egypt and Israel was this cloud, this pillar of fire. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. The grammar on that's kind of strange. Uh, It lit up on one side so that Israel had light, and it was dark on the other side, so Egypt had that inky, sticky darkness that they had had previously. This is the point the Egyptians should have figured out. Something's not right. Something is really strange because this, again, remember, it's providing light for millions of people. This gigantic tornado has suddenly lit up their side and turned the lights off over here. I'm out. That's the response they should have had. I'm out. Something weird is happening here. Something supernatural is here. In fact, we know the scriptures are clear. The Lord is here. I'm out. But they don't. Moses stretches his hand over the sea and the Lord provides a wind. And it's significant. It's mentioned that the wind comes from the wrong side of the river. I mean, wrong side of the sea. So it splits from the wrong side doesn't split kind of right there in front of them so they're able to kind of go in and march as it goes it, it starts on the far side so it splits all the way so they're stuck all night watching under the light of the pillar of fire the sea begin to run from God I mean I, 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 I can't wait if I can't wait to ask Moses what that looked like when we get to glory like, in my own mind's eye, like, it's just shocking. I mean, massive pillar of fire. Huge sea of people. 
huge sea of water and it begins to open in such a way they're able to watch it come from the other side in. I mean, when it, did, did the water like jump out of the way so that they get to see it like splash? I can't, I, I don't know, amazing to think about. It's also, I think, going to explain too why the Egyptians feel comfortable stepping into it. It's because it's been opening for hours. It's not just like, oh, let's go, and they get smushed immediately. The sea begins to divide. They wait. It happens all night. And in the last watch, uh, right before the morning, the people of God go in. And again, thinking this is not some little kind of quick, neat and tidy thing. It's not like, hey, all of you, grab your children and your stuff. Let's run. This is a massive undertaking. I suspect, again, as well, it's not. Uh, well, let's just you know, think through this for a second. If you had to take half of the city of Charlotte and get it to Columbia, how well is 77 going to handle the traffic? For those of you who were stuck in traffic yesterday, how well does it handle it if there's one little hiccup? The correct answer is it doesn't. You need another bridge, right? Whatever. I don't know where it goes. I don't care. It's politics I'm not going to mess with. So again, thinking through this division of the Red Sea, it's not like it parts like the center aisle of church here. It's not like we're going down the aisle two and two or three and three. I suspect the parting of the sea was rather wide. To get half of the city of Charlotte through in one night, I mean, hundreds of yards maybe, maybe a half mile, maybe a mile wide. Who knows? Again, I can't wait to ask in heaven, what did that look like? Also makes a little bit more sense as to why Egypt would be comfortable going in, doesn't it? It's not like if you remember the old movie where it's like this wide and like this tall. And you're thinking that is the worst decision in human history to step into that. That's scary just to look at. Now, I think probably what you're looking at more is it's it's a massive space of just dry ground. And as the night ends, Israel goes in and they flee into the other side. Holy cow, I'm late. I'm so sorry. Wow. I'm going to owe an apology to the nursery workers today. They flee on dry ground. As it's noted, the Egyptians follow them in. And again, you would think, oh man, it's over. The Lord did a miracle. He got you into dry ground into the, uh, in the middle of the sea and you're still toast because you can't outrun a chariot. Until you get to the middle of the paragraph, verse 24, where the Lord looks down in the pillar of fire and just touches the Egyptians into panic. There's a neat little kind of uh, grammar joke here, a little reference that uh, their wheels drove heavily now, that's the same word that is used for Pharaoh's heart. When it says hardened, it, it's technically it was made heavy. Now, maybe the wheels fell off. That's one grammar option. The other is that maybe they bound on the axle so that they didn't rotate correctly anymore. That's another option. Another option is maybe it stopped being quite so dry ground and it turned into mud. Like we had the car get stuck out there in the grass a couple of weeks ago. Maybe that same kind of thing where they just get bogged down in the mud. Either way, chariots are only useful when they move and they stop moving. 
and God's people get out and the sea collapses. And all of the enemies of God are killed. I love how verse 30, they even get to see Israel as they're kind of collecting themselves afterwards. The dead wash up on the shore. Visible proof of the victory of God. Very quickly, just end with this. There is a great warning in this passage. A warning for those that see the glories of the Lord and either one reject or two just don't appreciate. And we have, as I've said, seen so much more. And I'll give you an example. We're about to do it. Should have been eight minutes ago. This table. This table is no longer the table of Passover where we remember when God spared the life of the Israelites instead of killing them like he did the Egyptians. This table is a reminder of when God killed his son so that I would not die and neither would you. We want to marvel at God's power. Marvel at this. That the living and true God would meet with his people at a table using grain and grape. May it be that we would never have hard hearts ignoring the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy in Jesus. Forgive us for our sins. We pray and we ask you would bless us in the table in Jesus' name. Amen.